Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. If you are here this morning and the Lord is stirring something in your heart, you need prayer, you want to talk, um, we put together a few chairs in the back over there in the corner and would love to talk with you after the service, pray with you. Uh, if uh, the Lord draws you there, I encourage you. Meet me over there, meet some of our elders over there, and we look forward to that. There are nights when I drag myself up to my room and I lay my head down on the pillow and I say to myself, what a mess you've made of this one. And that's when the thoughts begin to drift back into my head of what went on during the day, of the selfish moments that I had, the insensitive words that I may have spoken, or the, the times when I had hurled a grenade, when what I should have done was done everything in my power to bring peace. Have you been there? Ah, let's have a show of hands, actually. Uh, Scott's going to come around with a mic, and you're just going to share a little bit. <laughs> They say the air is human. The air is human. And I suppose we could say that and, and be comforted a little bit by it. But when we think about it, that doesn't give us very much hope for the future, does it? To err is human? Okay, well, I guess I'm just destined to make a mess of things. I might as well just get it in my head that my marriage is going to be a disaster. At some point, my kids are just going to grow to hate me. I might as well just drop out and disconnect and do whatever it is that I want because one way or another... <laughs> Well, I'm going to end up either without a family or without a job or without friends or possibly out on the street, maybe even in jail. Happy thought. And that's actually pretty close to what the Apostle Paul draws our attention to in Ephesians chapter 2, those first few verses. He reminds us that the human race, as part of it, we are dead in our sins we have been following a condemned course, the course that our world is on. We have been walking in the footsteps of the spirit of rebellion and disobedience. We've been hopelessly enslaved to and running after whatever animalistic appetites bubble up to the surface within us. And we're fully deserving the anger and the justice of our creator. How's that for bleak? To err is human. Well, yes, I guess there is some comfort that we can get from that. It tells me that at least I'm among friends. <laughs> I'm no better than any of the other pathetic losers out there. And even the shiniest of those who are out there, well, they're no better than me. But, you know, when I think about it, it's, it's actually kind of depressing. Some days I feel it. Some days I feel it more than others. As much as I want to be better and rise above it, and be someone who, who builds up rather than tears down, so often I come to the realization, I've messed up yet again. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul felt a little bit like that as he lay back down in his cell there in Fort Antonia. 
Let me tell you how he got there. We're walking through Acts chapter 22, 30 through 23, 11 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, open them to that passage, 22, 30, and make sure that I get this right. Let's review a little bit. The Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, we know that's his name because later on we find that out. He must have been getting really frustrated. I mean, if you think about it, here he was. He stepped into the disturbance that he saw happening there on the Temple Mount. He restrained this man named Paul, the one who apparently was responsible for all of this. In the heat of the moment, they're shouting, they're shoving going on. He tries to make sense of it. He can't make any sense of it because they're saying different things, and it's hard to make out what's going on. So he pulls Paul back to the barracks. He thinks Paul is some troublemaker from Egypt from years back, but when Paul opens his mouth, he finds out, ah, I don't think this is the guy that I thought he was. This guy's speaking Greek. He's articulate. He's a... Uh, He's a respectable Jew. And then he gives him a chance to speak. That doesn't go so well. So he hauls him back into the fortress. And then he decides, I really got to get answers out of this guy. So I'm going to put a whip to his back. This is the way we get our answers. It's the Roman way, really. But then Paul says, wait, I'm a citizen of Rome. Oh, my goodness. That must have completely thrown this man for a loop. Now he's got a real problem on his, on his hands because he could get in some serious trouble with his higher-ups for having restrained and then attempting to flog a Roman citizen without a hearing, without a trial. What a mess. This poor guy doesn't seem to know what to do. He, every, everywhere he goes, he's stepping into a hornet's nest here. And every move he makes, he seems to be getting some type of bites. But he's not giving up. After a good night's rest, he makes another move. And that brings us to verse 30 of chapter 22. And it says this, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, the council, the highest Jewish court in the land, it's made up of priests, it's made up of elders, it's made up of scribes. And they belong, each of them, to one of two parties, either the party of the Sadducees or the party of the Pharisees. And we're going to talk about the differences in just a few moments here. This Roman commander, he wants answers. And rather than take them to the, the regular court, it's very likely that this is more of like an informal meeting right outside Fort Antonia. Acts 23 verse 1 tells us this. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I lived my whole life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And we say, so far so good. This sounds pretty good. Last week, we noticed the way Paul greeted the crowd. He said, brothers and fathers. This time, he only says brothers. Well, that's probably because it's very likely the men he's speaking to are his peers. It's very likely that he went to school with some of these guys. It's very likely he served alongside one of these guys as a Pharisee years ago. He had gotten letters from some of them to go persecute Christians. He knows them. It had been years since he had been there in their presence, but, but here he is, he's back with them again. So he says, brothers, notice it says he's standing there. He's looking straight at them. 
Luke doesn't tell us that he's standing in defiance, doesn't tell us he had a scowl on his face, doesn't tell, him, tell us that he's looking all pompous or, or self-absorbed or high and mighty or anything like that. You know, he's, just, he's looking intently at the council, calm, collected, apparently confident that his God is going to bring about his will. And he declares to them that up until that moment, He's been true to his conscience. His conscience is clear. He's been living all out for God, and, and, and yeah, it's good. Now, consciences can be tricky things. It's possible, isn't it, to have a weak conscience. It's possible to have a bad conscience. It's possible to even have a seared conscience. Our consciences, the the small voice inside of us, they can do a great job of helping us discern right from wrong, wrong from right. But if our consciences are poorly informed, they've been given some bad information, or maybe they've been beaten down to the extent that we've violated them over and over and over again, well, well, then they can lead us astray, can't they? They can betray us. They can fail to give us any signals at all. But what Paul's talking about here, he's talking about a good conscience. He's talking about one that's been informed by the truth of God's word and the revelation that came to him on the road to Damascus. He's talking about a conscience that has been strengthened and built up through years and years and years of submission to God and obedience to his word. And based on all he knew and all that his conscience was telling him, he looks back on his life and he can confidently say, it's, it's, it's good. I have a clear conscience, a good conscience that I've been doing the right thing. And we might think, very good, Paul. This is great. You're off to a good start. Let's see what you have to say next. But no. That statement immediately summoned up trouble. Look at verse 2. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, It's very helpful that Luke gives us the high priest's name here. That allows us to go back, do a little research, and find out something about this guy. And what we find out is that Ananias, though the high priest, not a nice guy. One commentator notes that he was one of the most cruel and evil and corrupt high priests ever to hold office. The Jewish historian, Josephus, maybe you've heard of him, he actually tells us that this high priest was a great hoarder up of money and that he even took away the tithes that belonged to the priests by violence. That's what you want your high priest to be doing. So Paul barely gets a word out and Ananias says, smack him, smack him right now in the mouth. Why was that? What's the deal? What was it about Paul's statement that led him to such extreme measures? Well, we can assume that it's because Paul is telling him right then and there that as he has been going around speaking the truth about Jesus to everyone everywhere, remember that language? That was part of the accusation. And that all of this was in line with God's will. This This is good, and I have a good conscience. Well, Okay, so if Paul is doing the right thing and God is on board with what Paul is doing, well then we're not in line with, we're not in sync here and we must be doing the wrong thing. 
by saying that, Paul's saying that we were wrong in crucifying Jesus. Paul's saying we're wrong in persecuting Christians, these followers of the way, and, and that we, as pious and religious as we are, well, then you're saying we're lost. This is blasphemous. We're no dummies, Paul. We see the implications of the statement that you're making here. And so we smack you. But that's okay, right? Good smacking is good for the soul, right? That's a saying, right? Isn't it? No, it's not. <laughs> How would you feel if you got smacked in the mouth? I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Smacked in the mouth? Well, one thing, there's the pain of it all. But then... What also goes with it is, is the humiliation and the insult. That's brutal. Well, apparently, Paul didn't appreciate it either. Because immediately, he snaps right back and he says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you, sitting, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? He's probably referring to Ezekiel 13, where... False prophets, they're described as these walls that have been covered over with whitewash. And then the judgment of God is going to come. He's going to cause those walls to fall down. And when Paul say, says this, you know what my first reaction is? It is, yeah, go get them. Paul, tell them. You let it be known what hypocrites these guys really are. We know how corrupt this Ananias is. Bring him down. And the crowd goes wild. Everyone's cheering and excited for the underdog who used his quick wit to strike a blow against bad leadership. It's not how it goes down. Look at verse 4. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? They're shocked. They can't believe it. Paul, you would say such a thing? And they question him for not showing him proper respect. Again, we might, we might expect Paul right here to say, well, you guys don't understand. Do you understand how evil this guy is? Do you understand how corrupt he is? Let me show, let me lay it out for you here, and then all of you will understand, and we can all rise against him and turn this thing all upside down. We don't see that. What we do see as Paul immediately steps back. Verse 5 says, Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. 28. You know what Paul's saying? He said, I stand rightly accused. This is not a glorious moment of triumph for Paul. This is not a hold your head up high. You know what? I'm going to shake the dust off of my feet here. No, he had just told them that he had a good conscience up to this point. But from the looks of things, as best as I can tell here, his anger got the better of him. And there he was himself breaking God's law. But you know, our American minds are so quick to stand and protest, and we say, wait a second. Paul's a truth-teller. 
He's a whistleblower. He's calling out the corrupt system. He's shining light on the darkness. He's taking down the bad man. That's something to celebrate. You know what? That's something to emulate. And holding people accountable, that can be a good thing. It is a good thing, right? Truth, justice are good and right. They are the way of our God. And yet the way that we go about calling it out matters, doesn't it? The words we use, the inflections in our voices, the attitudes that underlie, they go a long way to reveal to the onlookers of what's going on inside of our hearts. And they can impact the effectiveness of our efforts to carry out the mission that God has given us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. What did the crowd accuse Paul of? Reviling, right? Reviling. Isn't that the very thing that Paul was trying to encourage the Corinthians not to do? 1 Corinthians 4.12, he writes, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Well, what happened to your example, Paul? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5.11, we've read it many times over the past few weeks, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus didn't revile, did he? That's what Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The people standing next to Paul were right. Paul had been caught in a moment of disrespect. Now he says that he didn't realize that that was the high priest. I don't doubt that he is being absolutely truthful here. What's going on? Well, it could be that he, he, he had poor eyesight, like so many commentators think he, he had. Remember that moment of blindness? They think that he suffered with an ongoing issue here poor eyesight. He just couldn't tell who he was talking to. Or it could be that maybe this is an informal meeting. Maybe the high priest isn't in his priestly gown. And, and maybe Paul didn't recognize him by sight and he, and he just didn't know who he was speaking to. But you know, it really doesn't matter. Because Paul knew that the words that came out of his mouth, even though they were true, these aren't becoming of a man of God. And therefore, they could have given anyone the wrong impression of what a sincere follower, sincere representative of God looks like. The Roman commander, he must have been getting some good impressions, right? There's no doubt in my mind, he probably saw right through what Ananias was doing here. It must have, must have been sickening to a certain extent. I know what you're doing. You're not a good guy. You're having this guy smacked. But, you know, I think that's okay because I don't think that Ananias probably really cared what this commander thought of him. But, you know, as we've seen from time to time in our study of Acts, Paul is on a mission, isn't he? He's on a mission to bear witness to the good work that God has done in his life. He was full of pride. He was full of hate. He was full of of a deep desire to fight against God's people, and yet he was transformed. 
into a passionate and humble servant who declares now that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven your sins, to be made right with God. And this wasn't the example that he wanted to give. What's more, Paul not only cares about what those people think, he cares about what God thinks. First and foremost, and he knows he just stepped out of bounds. So he quickly corrects himself. Who's watching you? And what are your actions and your words and your attitudes tell others about God and the work that Christ has done inside of you? What does God think of those actions, those words? You and I might assume sometimes that we're doing God's work as we lash out, as we type these scathing comments online, as we are quick and, uh, to, to exert our anger when we hear something that is just not true. I heard something from someone just this past week that's very, very close to me, and my first reaction is, mm, that's not right. I need to set them straight. Do I really know what God's word is calling me to do? Now look at what Paul does next. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And it's true, Paul was a Pharisee. He was before he came to faith in Jesus. In fact, he was what he wanted to be, a prime example of a, a living, a breathing example of a life lived out in as much obedience as is humanly possible to God. That was one of his goals. But in a real sense, now that he had come to know Jesus, well, he was still a Pharisee in the sense that he still shared with the Pharisees a fundamental belief that there is hope, that there is life after death. The Sadducees didn't believe in that. They didn't believe in any sort of resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in miracles for that matter. And Luke tells us that parenthetically in verse 8. If you ever went to Sunday school, you probably heard it explained to you that this is the reason why the Pharisees were sad, you see. Or the Sadducees were sad. Yeah. Uh, he says this is all about the hope and the resurrection. That's what makes all the difference here. That's what Paul understands. That's the hope that we have, isn't it? And that's what tells us that our hope that we have in Christ is real. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, I've delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is of first importance? Well, it's that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what it's all about. This is what the hope of the Christian faith hangs upon. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That means it's a waste. It's worthless. Jesus coming back from death to life, it tells us that what he came to accomplish, he actually accomplished. It tells us, in fact, that the Son of God, 
most certainly did make payment for our sins as he died upon the cross. It tells us death no longer has power over him, none whatsoever. Paul writes in verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is risen from the dead, those who believe in him have every, every reason to believe that he will come through on his promises to raise them back to life. They can believe that he has indeed gone to prepare a place for them and that he will come again and take them to himself, as John 14, 3 says. This is the fantastic news of the gospel, right? That those who are completely undeserving, who've made a mess of everything, who have been bent on going about it wrong, who have never been able to make it right, they have indeed been made right with their God. They've been brought into his family. They've become his people. Death is not the end for them. They will be raised back to life forever to be with their Savior in paradise. And if you are here this morning and that is your hope, that is what you are clinging to. That is where you are going. Do you know that hope? Boy, if you don't, let's talk after we're through here. Just meet me over there in the back corner. We set aside a few chairs in the back corner so that we can pray with you after the service. Let's meet over there after the service. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So did Paul. But when he made this statement, it ignited a furnace in that place. Verse 7 says, when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 9 says, then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if, the, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Apparently, they, cried, they cared so much about the resurrection that the, the accusations that had been laid against Paul, that he was against their people, against the law, against the temple, those things really didn't matter at the moment. All they cared about was the resurrection. So now they're taking sides with Paul. He's on our side. Verse 10 says, when the dissension became violent, can you imagine? The tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Boy, what a day this guy has had. A rough couple of days. But then there's Paul, still in custody. <laughs> we can only imagine what kind of injuries he must have had about nearly being torn apart. Not to mention what he was going through in his mind. What would you have been thinking? You lay there that afternoon and into the evening about what, and thinking about rolling it over in your head what just happened. I have a tendency to analyze things, to reanalyze things after they happen. Once I step away from the world, gather my thoughts, I begin to reevaluate what I said, what I did, what motivated me to do the things that I did. And if I were there on Paul's shoes, there's no question in my mind, I would have been troubled. I would have been really troubled. I would have been thinking about the, 
the mess I had made, the commotion that was stirred up. I had a part in that. I'd have been feeling terrible about the impression that I had given these onlookers, given the commander, my, my temper got the better of me, and I would have said something like, what was I thinking? I know better than this. I don't do the things that I want to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing those things. What a wretched man I am. What hope do I have? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Some of you recognize those are a paraphrase of Paul's words. He wrote those in Corinth before coming to Jerusalem. And I wonder, as he's laying there, are those rolling around in his head? What a mess I've made. Where's my hope? You've been there, right? You've had those times where you've realized, I, I've made a mess. I'm carrying guilt here. I have shame. And that can be an agonizing place to hang out, can it not? But here's the thing. Paul knew, and I know, and those of you who have placed your trust in Christ know, you don't have to stay there. Because of what Jesus did, we don't need to stay there. In fact, that's the, exactly the reason that he came. So that we who have made an absolute mess of things, willfully turned away from our maker, turned on our brothers, turned on our sisters, turned on our parents, in some cases have done downright despicable, maybe even unspeakable things. In other cases, just, just tiny little things, but they've all add up to the same thing, sin against a holy God. And what Jesus did was to come and deliver us from all of that so that we might be forgiven our sin and walk shame and guilt-free in the newness of life, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Ephesians 2, he writes, yes, you were dead in your sins. You were deserving, fully deserving of the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By all the good things that you have done, you have been, no, by his grace, you have been saved. And someone says, yes, 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 I, I get that, I know. I've gone to Sunday school, I've been in church my whole life, I have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, but you don't understand. I keep sinning. I keep failing. And it weighs heavy on my heart. And to you, our Savior would say, yeah, that too. That is what I came to forgive. 1 John 1, 9 is a verse that if you don't know it by heart, this is one you need to engrave on your heart. Simple if-then statement that makes all the difference. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much sin is he going to forgive? All of it. All of it? Yeah. All of it. Paul knew that. Do you? And here's something else amazing. God doesn't leave Paul all alone, lying there in his cell to deal, deal with his own thoughts. No, he shows up. He shows up to give him what he needs to go on. Look at verse 11. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Do you see how gracious our God is? He visits Paul. He calls him to have courage and tells him the work is not yet completed. And this is about the moment where somebody says, that's really nice for Paul. Good for him. Wow. Must be nice to be visited in the middle of the night by Jesus. Let me tell you, that's never happened for me. Never had Jesus show up in my room, stand there, pat me on the shoulder, encourage me. I believe you. I believe you. But you know what you do have? You have the physical body of Christ right here on this earth walking right beside you, there to build up your faith, there to remind you of the truth of God's promises, the forgiveness that you now have, the hope that you have to look forward to, and to encourage you on in the mission that God has given you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ, and individually, members of it, your fellow Christians, my fellow Christians, this, this is going on right here, right now. Look around you in this room. They are the physical body of Jesus and dwelt by his spirit standing, sitting in your case, right beside you. And they have been given to you to infuse you with the courage that you need to go on. The work that God has given you to bear witness to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to your world, that's not going to be over until it's over, right? And that means you need God's people to keep going. Hebrews 10, 23, it tells us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, it's so easy to waver in our world these days. It's so easy to get discouraged, so easy to get sidetracked, so easy to start thinking, my mission is not so much to preach the gospel, but I need to go tell all these people over here and over here what, what's what. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, friends, do you see the day drawing near? Have you read Mark 13 lately? Have you considered in your minds the signs that Jesus said are the birth pains of the great day that is coming. We are drawing each 
day forward. Each day we mark off on the calendar is one day closer to that day, the moment of his return. I don't know about you, I'm getting kind of excited. My heart's heavy for the things that are going on in the world. It is tragic what is happening, the brutality inflicted on people, and yet I know the great day of the Lord is coming. What does Jesus say to us? He says, he says be ready. He says, stay awake. Church, we need to be about his business, don't we? That's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. But we need to continue on. Have you been tempted to look at church as one of many options that you have for the weekend? Have you been tempted to look at it as, as something good to do, but you know, everyone's got to have a break every once in a while. Maybe you find yourself wondering, you know, does this really matter? Does my presence here really matter? I, I'm filling a seat here. Is anyone really going to care? Have you begun to think that, you know, showing up every once in a while, and that's good enough. Let me encourage you to put those thoughts out of your mind. Tie them to a stone. Throw them into the sea. Because if you've placed your trust in Jesus, then you have been made a part of God's people. You have been given specific gifts by his spirit that you might build up your fellow Christians. They're not for you to brag about. They're for you to use for the good of Christ's church. You have been given a sacred mission to proclaim the good news of your Savior in a hostile world. No, that's not easy. Yes, you're going you're to get tired. There's going to be opposition. There are going to be moments where you're going to be put to the test. Yes, at times, at times you're gonna fail. And there are times when you're gonna feel it. That's why you need the encouragement and the truth and the grace and the love and the support and the accountability and the hands that are going to grab hold of you and pull you forward to the finish line. God has graciously given, provided you this in his people. Christ has provided for you, church. What an incredible thing. He's standing here with you. He's giving you the courage you need to walk in the newness of life and go forward in the name of your risen king. When you stumble and fail, Know that your sins have been washed away in the victory of Jesus Christ. When you're tempted to just phone it in and lay there in your bed and wallow in discouragement, get yourself up and get with God's people because you need them and they need you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of so many people of faith that have gone before us, great heroes of faith, we read in your word. And yet, Lord, as we look at their lives, we see that they are real and that they have stumbled from time to time. They needed you just like we need you, Lord. 
Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to look to you this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would strengthen our resolve, that you would give us deep, heartfelt desires to spread the news of Jesus Christ in a world that so desperately needs it. And when we fail, Lord, may we cling to that gospel ourselves and know that we have been forgiven and have a future with you in eternity. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.